Hello and welcome to Sequelize It, where we chronicle the triumphs and dissect the disasters of Hollywood, one movie franchise at a time. We are continuing our archaeological survey of George Lucas and Steven Spielberg's Indiana Jones franchise with the third movie in the series, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Searching high and low for the Holy Grail, my name is KC, and joining me is... I am your foxy friend, Backlash, and... Uh, oh, God. Um, okay, uh, we're, we're, I'm just going to put the phone away. And uh, if I disappear in the next 24 hours, uh, you know who to look for. I'm no Chris Alive. Sequelize its Mastodon of the Monotone, and I'm here to say only the Monotone Man may pass. Uh, and after last week's brief journey into the weird and sensitive and absurd it was good to come back to a movie that is most definitely a soft reset of the franchise but before we get into that here are a few ways that you can help the podcast grow one you can leave us a five-star review on apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app of choice Two, you can be sure to subscribe so you can be the first to hear new episodes. Three, you can follow us on Twitter at SequelizeIt. Four, you can send us an email and let us know what movie franchises you'd like to see us take on at SequelizeIt at gmail.com. There's two ads in there. That's fine. And five, if you like what we're doing, just tell a friend to give us a listen and keep on circulating the pod. Backlash and Chris, after last week's movies and just how absurd and weird and fringy everything was, just like what were your initial thoughts when you were watching The Last Crusade? It is definitely a nice change of pace to get back to some good old wholesome Nazi slaughter. I I just uh, I had seen parts of this movie before, as I had seen parts of Temple of Doom, and I I already knew what I was in for. I knew that it was going to be generally more um, entertaining and and much more direct in the right direction as far as like who the villains are, and uh, I'd known about like the, the the father and son dynamic, and yeah, um, I was in for something more or less pleasant. It also helps that it was like five minutes shorter than Temple of Doom. Yeah. It was this was a very, very good change of pace compared to Temple of Doom. You know, just the way even just the way not to get too far ahead, but even just the way the movie starts is such a just a breath of fresh air. Like <sighs> Temple of Doom, I think it's fair to say that we were just completely and utterly just left aghast by what Temple of Doom was, right? Mm. Yeah, that whole thing was uh, just a big reaction of, wait, this is the movie? Yeah, like, I knew it was bad or that it wasn't well-liked, but I didn't quite understand what it was until we watched it. And I keep going back and forth on whether that one was a good one or a bad one. Like, I... Uh, but nevertheless, it was still good to come back to this movie and have it be somewhat less, definitely less controversial, which was very nice and a lot less, a lot less 
draining and confusing to watch. And with that out of the way, I guess we'll just go straight on to trivia. In 1984, having apparently learned nothing from Temple of Doom, executive producer George Lucas wrote an eight-page treatment for what was then called Indiana Jones and the Monkey King, wherein Indiana would fight a ghost in Scotland, travel to Africa, find the Fountain of Youth, and find the Garden of Immortal Peaches from (laughs) Chinese folklore in Africa. <laughs> what? <laughs> so they're doing the, the whole Sun Wukong thing, but like it's not, but set in Africa. Yeah, basically. Oh. Suffice it to say, this idea would not get off the ground. The least of the reasons being that this treatment featured insensitive images of African people, along with it being a fucking terrible idea. Coincidentally, this treatment would leak onto the internet in 1997, making lots of early internet users think that it was a treatment for Indiana Jones 4 since it had been dated 1995. Uh, I don't know if this is a spoiler or not, but the movie we got for Indy 4 was somehow better and worse than this treatment. (laughs) Uh, With that idea buried, Lucas continued his weird and bizarre push to put Indiana Jones in a haunted cat in a haunted house movie. He's been, he's been on this since temple of doom, like trying to get Indy into a fucking haunted house. I don't know why director Steven Spielberg luckily had an out in this case. He had just done the movie poltergeist. Lucas then said he thought the movie should be about the Holy grail, which Spielberg was initially hesitant about wanting to do more to flesh out the relationship between Indiana Jones and his father. If ever there was a more crystallized view of the way Lucas and Spielberg approached storytelling, Lucas wanted to tell a story about Indiana Jones chasing ghosts and a Monty Python Python punchline, and Spielberg wanting to actually develop who Indy is as a character is definitely it. Naturally, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the central co-star in this movie, the man who is, in all honesty, the godfather of the type of character Indiana Jones is, the legendary Sir Sean Connery. Connery would be instrumental in bringing the character of Henry Jones Sr. to life, including a tons of notes and feedback to Luke and Spielberg, making the character a lot more comedic, and a lot less Yoda-like as he was written in the original script. Connery was a little hesitant to take the role at first, as he was only 12 years older than Harrison Ford at the time, but eventually he came around to the idea. In fact, it was Connery who pitched the Indy and Henry should sleep with the same woman idea, an idea that Lucas, for some reason, wasn't terribly keen on, probably because it was funny. Uh, a lot of writers touched the script before it made it to the set. (sighs) Christopher Columbus, who wrote Gremlins and the Goonies and would later go on to direct Home Alone, Mrs. Doubtfire, and the first two book series that shall not be named movies, Mm. was was the one who wrote the original Monkey King script, while 
Diana Thomas, who wrote Romancing the Stone, would write a first draft of the Haunted House story before her untimely death in 1985. In 1986, Minu Mehes, writer of The Color Purple, completed a draft where an indie would meet Henry in Montsegur with a nun named Chantel as the love interest and the film ending on Henry finding the grail and ascending to heaven while Chantel, who I must stress is a nun, decides not to go to heaven and to stay on earth and be in love with Indy. Oh boy! What? What? <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm looking at this. I'm hearing this. I'm like, you have to be making some of this up. But I am not. When dealing with George Lucas, nothing is impossible. No. Yeah. It it says a lot that you know these treatments, the weird treatments in scripture, were written by directors. Well, by writers that George Lucas selected. First, in 1987, Spielberg suggested Jeffrey Baum, writer of the movie Interspace, for the next rewrite. Oh, let me interrupt you for a second. I'm sorry. He also wrote uh, The Dead Zone, a Stephen King adaptation. Has a few distinctions I'd like to point out. It is easily one of the most solid yet underspoken of Stephen King adaptations. It's easily the least gory David Cronenberg movie. And probably the most understated Christopher Walken performance. Go see The Dead Zone. It's very good. Yeah, I can't believe I forgot to write that in my notes. I definitely noticed it. But yeah, isn't that one of the movies Stephen King doesn't like because it's... No, he liked it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, Much of what Bohm contributed to this version of the script actually made it into the film, including Indy and Henry meeting to kick off the second act. In 1988, Bohm completed a second draft that included many of Connery's suggestions for comedy and the flashback sequence to young Indiana Jones that stars River Phoenix. Uh, River Phoenix got the role of young Indy on a recommendation from Harrison Ford after playing after River played Harrison's son in the movie The Mosquito Coast. While most of what Bohm wrote would go into the movies and he would get the lone screenwriter credit of the film, the script would get at least two more revisions. One by Tom Stoppard, who wrote the movie Brazil, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, and Shakespeare in Love. With Indiana Jones drawing on familiar James Bond tropes and having the original Bond, it's only fitting that there are a number of James Bond callbacks, including Julian Glover, who played Aristotle Christatos in For Your Eyes Only, portraying evil rich guy Walter Donovan in Allison Duty. <laughs> Duty. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I wasn't the only one who. <laughs> uh, I was going to do it if one of you guys didn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, we are in our 30s. Um, uh, uh, and Allison Duty, who made her f- feature film debut in A View to Kill, portraying Elsa Schneider. In the film's climax, Walter Donovan shoots Henry Jones with a Walther PPK, which is more commonly known as James Bond's gun and really his only gun. The, the new movies don't count. 
or 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 a PP7 if you're a gamer. Yeah. Um, I was wondering what it was in Goldeneye. I couldn't remember. Yeah, it's uh, I guess for trademark or rights issues, they had to change names. Yeah. Um, Steven Spielberg would say that uh, Steven Spielberg would say that he was consciously regressing to make something more akin to Raiders after the mixed critical reception of Temple of Doom, which I'll remind you is Spielberg's least favorite Indiana Jones movie. Indiana... Spielberg would have to pass on the movies Big and Rain Man to film this movie. As a bit of foreshadowing, Lucas and Spielberg's original deal for the Indiana Jones franchise with Paramount promised at least five movies. Lucas was content to let the Indiana Jones series stand as a trilogy and to continue telling Indy's story through stuff like the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles and through a few uh, LucasArts video games. And Spielberg felt he was going to mature as a filmmaker and would take on the role of producer for any future installments. And everything was great until Lucas came up with the idea to set the movies in the 1950s so he could have aliens in the movie. But that's a tale for our next time. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade had a budget of $48 million and would go on to make $474 million at the box office. It has an 88% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 94% audience score. Huh. Anyone have any lingering trivia? Nope. This sounds this sounds like it should have been a recipe for disaster with how many times the script was rewritten. I know, right? Like usually movies that are touched by this many hands don't turn out good at all. Like but... I feel like the mm, it'll probably date this podcast to bring this up, but if you at the time of this podcast, there was a movie out called Chaos Walking, which apparently was supposed to be completed in 2016. And it spent the last four years going through rewrites and reshoots because of the original version was apparently unreleasable. And oh. as the movie stands right now, it's in a mitigated mess. Well, that's nice. So, <laughs> that all appears to be a bomb. Yeah, and that and that always is kind of how these stories play out like it gets tampered with so much it's not recognizable and it's kind of shocking that it that this movie would turn out this good i mean not to not to put too fine of a point on it but i think the fact that it seems like the story got more focus once spielberg kind of got more involved in the writing process i think that kind of says everything you need to know really I mean, it was it was Spielberg who suggested Kasdan, and it was Lucas who su- suggested Hike and Cats for Temple of Doom, and it was Spielberg who suggested Jeffrey Bohm for for this movie. So, I guess next time we'll see who he who which. Of these two visionary directors, tapped the writer to do the next movie. It's it's like I say, Lucas is a creative guy, but he gets too much credit for the things he works on. 
he uh, he's like creative without he uh he's like, like vince Russo. discussion we've had before <laughs> yeah he's vince russo i think that's the best that yes that's, that is a perfect analogy yes including the whole thing of thinking stereotypes are funny because I talked about that when we were talking about the prequels, and and that clicked again when you were talking about the African thing. Uh, uh, well, before we go and talk more about Star Wars, because that's really all this podcast is about. No, don't worry, there will be more. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's get on with Act One and our feature presentation. So much cooler than you do. Anyways, we open with a title card done in the style of Raiders of the Lost Ark, almost as if Spielberg wanted to say, "Don't worry, folks. No one's heart is getting ripped out here." We see a troop of Boy Scouts riding horses through the desert until they dismount at the entrance of a huge cave. A dapper-looking young man and his chubby compatriot make their way into some into the caves, where the noise of excavation leads to ha- them happening upon a group of villainous villains who are villainous, searching for something. You may be tricked into thinking that we're watching Our Man Indy, but this is merely the Mirror Universe version of Indy. The handsome young man is the actual Indiana Jones, who identifies the cross that they've dug up as the cross of Coronado. Young Indy accidentally coins a meme, the first of many in this movie, when he insists that this cross belongs in a museum and tells Gunner's pal to run off and find some responsible adults. (laughs) In the meantime, young Indy thinks he can just hop down off the cliff and take the stone and climb right back up, but naturally, he makes some noise, and a chase ensues. Indiana Jones goes over the river and through the woods and onto a train for some important character development. Whilst trying to hide, Indy, who had been nonplussed by snakes before, at- accidentally goes and lands into a whole box of them crawling all over him and through his clothing. That phobia firmly established in the style of Solo, Indy again has to fight to evade capture before falling in with a lion who is ready to recreate the circle of life all over young Indy's ass. <laughs> Indy grabs the nearest weapon, a whip, and cracks it at the beast, accidentally cutting his shin because Harrison Ford has a scar on his shin, and even though no one has really made any mention of it before, it's important. Young Indy is able to escape Mirror Indy and run all the way back to town where he tries to get his dad's attention. Indy's dad is a dick about it and makes him count in Latin just so he'll pay attention to him. Indy's pal returns with the authorities, but swerve! The cops are just there to take the cross and give it to our group of baddies. Mirror Indy is nonetheless impressed with young Indy, giving him his hat, thus fulfilling the need for George Lucas to explain shit that doesn't really need to be explained that would affect countless other movies involving his intellectual property, several of which he didn't have any direct uh, control over. Flash forward to 1938, and Indiana Jones proper is doing what he does best, 
getting his ass kicked by two mooks while a bad guy monologues at him. Turns out this is Panama Hat, the same lousy good-for-nothing who stole the cross of Coronado in the first place, which Indy just so happened to be able to steal back. Indy manages to kick some goons' asses and manages to dive off the boat and into the water just in time for the whole damn boat to explode. Indiana then returns to the States with his loving and adoring class in session. We once again meet and are introduced to Marcus Brody, who waits patiently for the class to end before Indy gives up the cross so it can be displayed in the museum. And we come to realize that Brody and Indy have known each other for a long time indeed. Far longer than we would even think in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And a great nod to the fact that Indiana Jones is probably a shit professor, but with the constantly not being in class because he's globetrotting halfway across the world collecting precious artifacts. Indy's office is crammed to the gills with students trying to get his attention as he goes into a small workroom. Unable to deal with all the noise outside, he puts on his trusty hat and sneaks out the window, wherein he's not quite sneaky enough to escape the attention of some guys dressed in suits who take Indy to meet Walter Donovan. You see, Donovan is not actually a bad guy. He's just a rich person who collects rare antiquities and keeps most of them to himself. And the fact that he's giving off evil bad guy energy is just a coincidence, I'm sure. It's not like he's been seen portraying a space Nazi before or anything. <laughs> anyway, Donovan has brought Indy to examine an ancient tablet that is a marker that could lead to the Holy Grail. Indy's all, yeah, you got the wrong Jones. It's my dad's area of expertise. And Donovan's all, funny you should mention that. See, coincidentally, your dad went missing, which I can assure you I had nothing to do with. But, like, if you could just go and look for him and maybe find the grail in the meantime, I'd be eternally grateful. To which he begins to laugh maniacally. Okay, he does, but eternally grateful get it because because he's looking for the holy grail and and, and get an eternal eternal uh so indy and marcus head off to venice italy which is where henry was last seen they meet up with elsa steiner a woman who looks exactly like a nazi indy can hardly keep it in his pants long enough for elsa to explain that his father went missing and seemed to be close to discovering something about the location of the grail they head to the library where Henry Jones was last seen, where Andy takes all of maybe 30 seconds to figure out the room puzzle that leads to a giant tomb underneath the floor. There is a literal X marking the spot, and like, no one knew or cared to think about what that could mean. Sure, whatever. Indiana manages to crack open the door and enter a tomb that's full of nothing but petroleum, rats, and the worst nightmares of any one who hasn't been to or lived in New York City and seen rats bigger than most people's heads, just chilling on the subway reading the Da Vinci Code. They manage to find the tomb of a knight who can lead them to the second marker, but just as Indy creates a crayon etching of the tablet, a bunch of conspicuous guys wearing fezes with killer mustaches throw a match into the tomb, sending the tomb up in flames. No matter, Indy and Elsa manage to escape through the sewer. A boat chase ensues. A half dozen killed alleged bad guys later, and Indy manages to capture one of them and demands to know where his father is. 
Turns out this is Kasim, who is from the Brotherhood of the Cruciform Sword, which basically means he's a dude whose entire life is dedicated to making sure the Grail is never found. He's got no beef with Indy as long as Indy cares more about finding his father than he does the Grail, so Kasim tells him where his father is being held. Back in a hotel, Indy and Brody discuss that they need to go to the Austria-Germany border to rescue Henry, but not before Indiana Jones sleeps with a woman who is definitely, definitely not a Nazi, despite it being incredibly obvious that she's a Nazi. And that's Act 1. <laughs> Eternally grateful I just got that. <laughs> oh, come on! <laughs> oh, man. That's a, that's a thigh slapper. <sighs> okay, so I actually do have something interesting uh, to mention. Um, in the opening scene with young Indy, uh, we don't see the face of Professor Henry Jones. And this is obviously because uh, the actor playing him looks nothing like Sean Connery. But I do want to point out that actor is Alex Hyde White. And you probably don't know that name, but he has a few noticeable small roles. One of them being starring as Reed Richards in Roger Corman's Fantastic Four movie. Wait, what? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's him? That's him. Huh. Small fucking world. Ah, <laughs> uh, man. And just a reminder, that is the best Fantastic Four movie that has ever been made. You're not lying. We're, we're going to have to watch all four Fantastic Four movies, aren't yep. we? Yes, we are. Yeah. Wait, wait, nope. The first one was never theatrically, theatrically released. Nope, that just means we have to watch three shit movies. Mm. But yeah, this first act, again, what a breath of fresh air compared to Temple of Doom, which, I mean, the first act was exciting, but it seemed like a bunch of stuff was happening for no real reason and no real purpose. Well, it was uh, reminiscent of some of the earlier movies that we had seen in our podcast where it was just the, uh, the plot of the Temple of Doom opening was to get them to, from point A to point B. Uh, you made tongue-in-cheek references to Solo, but pretty much the good thing about the, the first 10-15 minutes of this movie is that like all the, all the references that they make and establish are in a svelte 10-15 minutes. Yeah, like you they, don't have to... And it doesn't feel like shoehorned. Like, yeah, it's kind of silly. We have to find out how Indy got a scar on his chin that nobody was really asking about. But again, it's it's just a thing that happens in a second so i didn't even realize that, that that was a reference to harrison ford's scar i just assumed that that was just like his first attempt at using the which i mean it works in that way too yeah and, and like that was i think that was something that was more or less added i mean i said it in tongue tongue-in-cheek kind of way but it was something that was more or less added on set because they noticed that harrison ford had a scar on his chin from that time he wrapped the car around the tree because he's harrison <laughs> ford but but yeah, it's it's just a little bit of storytelling. Like nothing in this in that first 10, 15 minutes overstays its welcome. And so you're never feeling like, okay, I just wish that this part of the movie would uh, this I wish this part of the movie would end because it's wasting time and we don't have to know anything about this. It does give us a little bit of insight into 
why and how Indiana Jones became the guy that he is. It's kind of like he puts on the guise of a bad guy in order to do good things, you know, which I think is kind of sort of the lesson that he he took away from that encounter with Mirror Indy. Um, and then, yeah, the boat scene, again, which I think there's just, there's loads of practical, I just, I love the fact that, like, there's no CG in this movie. I mean, there is, there is one very, very important shot in this movie that has to do with a computer. But for the most part, there's no computer generated anything in this movie. The boat scene being a prime example of that. It's completely practical effects. It's mostly Harrison Ford doing the stunts. It's just like a, it's a scene that makes you go, okay, this is the Indiana Jones movie that I thought I was going to get when I watched Temple of Doom. Yeah, and I mean, this is just a minor thing, but I assumed before we'd established that Panama Hat was reappearing past the cold open, that uh, that the suit he was wearing was what Indy would later wear in, in 1935 and, and the opening of Temple of Doom. Similar with the with the red flower and stuff like that. Yeah, but this takes place after Temple of Doom, though. No, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I just I just kept complaining that River Phoenix needs to cut his damn hair. But but I mean, it's nineteen twelve. Is that even socially acceptable? You 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 may be onto something there. (laughs) I mean, you're not going to have River Phoenix in a movie in the 1980s and not have him be all heartthrobby. You're just not. Yeah. I mean, when you, when you think, when you think of River Phoenix, you, you only think of a heroine. I mean, hero. Oh, <laughs> Jesus. Damn it. Sorry. I, yeah. Uh... I, he, he was a good talent. That was, that was gone from us too soon. Uh, uh, now I have to make complicated decisions on whether or not to cut that out. <laughs> You could just you could just have me saying he was a good talent that had been gone too soon, and I'd much prefer a movie with him than than Alden Ehrenreich. Sorry, Alden. Oh, River Phoenix has oh River Phoenix has fucking so Jesus Christ! Can we just go to the alternate reality where that happened? I've never seen Young Indy. I I, I don't know what the TV show is like, but yeah, uh, Young. Uh, I don't know the actor's name from Young Indiana Jones, but apparently Young Indiana Jones, the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles is really good. Um, Lucas really wanted, was bound and determined to shoot that TV show like a movie and was kind of ahead of his time in that respect. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, That was Sean Patrick Flannery of of Boondock Saints fame, infamy, however you feel about those shitty movies. Yeah. Mm. (sighs) I disagree with you guys on that. Sorry, uh, it's an Irish thing. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, and again, we get to see Indy come back to the states. I mean, this the, Indiana Jones and the Soft Reboot is basically this movie. Indiana Jones and forget that other movie you saw. It's Indiana Jones and that other movie isn't canon. Temple of Doom. Temple of Doom is basically. Uh, the Dragon Ball GT to this movie's Dragon Ball Super. 
Well, depending on what your opinion of Dragon Ball Super is. But I'm going to have to disagree with you about GT, by the way. It's a, it's a super. Suddenly, seven. I'm not the one with the most controversial opinion. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've never seen any episodes but the Super Seventeen saga, and as far as I'm, I can tell, like that's what Dragon Ball GT was about. For some reason, <laughs> for some reason, Goku was a kid. But <laughs> um, but yeah, every everything in this first act is a callback. Is well, it's not really a callback to to Raider the Lost Ark because it's taking the framework but actually building on it, which is, you know, what a sequel should do rather than just ditching what worked about the first and doing something completely and utterly different that almost feels like it could be its own movie without a character named Indiana Jones. This one takes what Raiders did well and amplifies it and makes it all the just makes it better and imbues it with a little bit more life and lightheartedness and soul. You know, just you know, the opening scenes with Indy talking with Marcus Brody, and you know, I think in the first movie, you just sort of get the feeling that you know, Brody is just a colleague that works with him, and this is the first inkling we get that you know, Brody has known. Indie, you know, for far longer than any of us would have imagined. And it's just like a nice, it's a nice little wrinkle in their relationship. And Marcus goes on to just be a, just a gem in this whole movie. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's kind of amazing because he was a pretty nothing character in Raiders. I don't, I don't even think we mentioned him when we were talking about Raiders. What I'll also say, and like, not necessarily relating to Act One, but but as far as the exposition in this movie goes, it it feels like you're sort of given pieces like along the way as as we sort of as we sort of find out more about Henry Jones Senior, as we find out more about his findings. Like the exposition kind of is a bit more evenly placed than sort of dumped in in one sort of area of the movie. These are, as far as I can tell, alternative choices. I still think Ra- Raiders is a better movie, but but this does things in some arguably better in some ways. See, I'm going back and forth in my mind about whether I like Raiders more or this movie more, and I feel like oh my, I I feel like I'm gonna have to go back and watch Raiders and then watch this movie because Temple Doom is a giant fucking sinkhole that consumes everything yep. around it, so it. It's. I can't tell if I'm underplaying Raiders because of what Temple of Doom does, or if I'm just not remembering how good Raiders was because of how bad Temple of Doom was. It's it, it's just like this weird donut hole right in the middle of of what was originally this this trilogy, but. Eh. I'll I'll say I'll say that like the way I I sort of think about it is that there are a lot of thi- I think that this movie is more airtight as far as the writing and it doesn't and it has better chase scenes it has more chase scenes but I think that like on an emotional like sort of visceral and like also visual level I think Raiders is just just succeeds more um but this movie is like it's it could it could sort of stand toe to toe like 
Yeah, definitely. I definitely get that sense. And we get to Italy with Miss definitely not a Nazi. Like, well, no, first we, I mean, we meet, they kind of go together. So Walter Donovan and Elsa and like, again, not knowing anything about this movie. As soon as I saw Julian Glover walk on screen, I was like, he is the bad guy. He is <laughs> definitely the bad guy. Like he, he just, uh, he's such a good act. He's, he's just a really good actor, isn't he? Yeah. It, yeah. The only problem is he's one of those actors where he shows up, you know, he's not the good guy. Yeah, it would actually be, like, weird if he was the good guy. Apparently, he was not satisfied with his American accent, which... I mean, I, I guess everyone's their own worst critic. I thought he was fine. I was like, going to compare him to Ben Kingsley in that regard, but then I remember Iron Man 3 kind of subverted that, so I don't know how to... I don't know how to <laughs> quantify it. Yeah. <laughs> I thought his American accent was fine. Yeah, yeah I, he was fine. I, I, think, I think he's just... a shakespearean actor that's being very hard on himself for you know he's always gonna those kind of actors are always gonna say i wish i could have done this better or that better but like he uh, it's just like dude just watch keanu reeves and dracula and 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 like feel better about yourself for for your (laughs) perfectly fine performance yeah Um, much respect to keanu reeves but um one thing i'll say is that like if this was just an excuse to shoot in Venice, good job. Because, like, yeah, what a what a location for for filming. What a location for just like sheer, just like visual candy. Um, whether it's this movie, whether it's like "Don't Look Now" by Dick Nicholas Rogue, whether it's uh like Casino Royale, which somewhat influenced by by "Don't Look," like just such a great great place to um to film. And apparently the the production designer did not want to shoot there. Well, it's not that he didn't want to shoot there. He didn't want to shoot there in August during tour season. And naturally, they yeah. shot the movie in August during tour season. Because, of course, they did. Yeah, it was like, we need to shoot a 1930s period piece. Let's do it when, when all the fucking tourists are out. But there not that one- you could tell. There was one scene that I appreciated, um, specifically when they they crawl out of the tomb through the manhole, and it's just like them, like full of gunk, like in the midst of all these these people, like in mostly like whiter cream colored suits, like mm-hmm. uh, like outside a cafe. It's just really good contrast. Yeah, and and also I think it it sets up very. <sighs> I think this this part of the movie sets up. Indy's relationship with his dad very well because though we will come to know that their relationship is very strained, the bottom line is that Indy doesn't really have Indy doesn't second guess the idea that he should go looking for his father. Like once he sees um, that his father's home has been ransacked in the States, he is all over He's all over it. He doesn't give it a second thought that he's going to go rescue his father, which is, I think, an interesting wrinkle because I think in other movies, you know, you would have a character like Andy being like, well, he was never a father to me. Sorry, that was my Triple H impression. Uh, (laughs) Well, basically, he's never been a father to me. No, 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 (laughs) no. 
No, don't take someone's bet. <laughs> it's I love it though. <laughs> hey everyone. <laughs> hey everyone. I'm Indiana Jones. Am I fucking going over? <laughs> and I got something to say about the rat. I couldn't. Even... <laughs> ah, yeah, just steal everybody's bits. Uh... <laughs> One thing I have to question is when did he get the diary? Because I don't remember that. Hmm. Um, he gets the diary. Didn't Elsa uh, have it? Oh no, 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 he... no, no. Um, Indy had. Yeah, that's a. Or they they not, show up. He shows up at his dad's house, and they find it's been ransacked, and that all the mail has been opened. And then he reaches in his pocket, and he has a package. And he opens it, right. and, and that's the diary. I'm like, wait, when did he get that? It, I, th- I think the, the implication is that it was mailed to him. Yeah, uh, the implication was mailed to him, but we don't see that. No, but the the point being that like Henry Jones like had a had a feeling that he couldn't trust the people that he was around. So yeah, I know, I know why he sent it, but I'm like, we didn't see Indy get it. Yeah, yeah, I, it was I, in his pocket when yeah. I think or, or wait, wait, wait. Was it was it handed to him in the classroom when he was when he was being mobbed by students? I feel like that's where it had to happen. Yeah, there's just a lot going on in that scene. Going back to all the female students want to fuck Indy. <laughs> yeah, and a few of the male Jesus ones. Jesus Christ! Oh my God! Yes. Nice. Which can you blame him? I mean, Harrison Ford at this period. I mean, he's here. He's Harrison Ford. Damn it. But twelve years younger than Sean Connery, he doesn't. There seems to be a physical <laughs> gap between them. Yeah, that 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 shocked me, but I guess it shouldn't shock me because uh, when Sean Connery passed, wasn't he like, wasn't he like in his nineties at that point? And I think Harrison Ford is in his seventies. I think. Uh, uh, wow! He fucking passed Halloween. I I completely forgot about that. Yeah. Uh, he was he was eighty. No, he was ninety. Yeah, and so that would make Harrison Ford. Man, Harrison Ford is he's gonna be in the new Indiana Jones movie? God Why? Damn. He passed on the same day as MF Doom. Fucking Christ. <sighs> R.I.P. Sean Connery. He well, I'll talk. I'll gush more about how much I love Sean Connery in this in this movie. Oh, I'm gonna ruin that. No, don't, please, don't. I, damn it. Okay, look, we all know Goldfinger is problematic. You don't have to go there. I'm sure we'll be doing James Bond at some point. Nothing to do with Goldfinger. Uh, but but I mean, we can still acknowledge that he was very good in this role, and he was the right person for it. Yeah. And he was good in a way that I don't think anyone would have expected him to be. He he is a lot funnier than I think he gets credit for. Like, a lot fucking funnier. Maybe it's because any of the movies that he's been in that have attempted to be funny are just bad. They're, they're either bad or they're Zardos, where he's unintentionally <laughs> funny. Uh, (laughs) uh, not a film franchise so we never have to watch no but the exorcist is and the guy who directed zardos directed the second one 
Yes, let's fucking watch the Exorcist series. I've never seen the second one. I'm sure I'll regret it, but the, the first <laughs> and third are goddamn masterpieces. And, and I'm, act- I'm actually glad to be wrong about Sean Connery, at the very least. Yeah. So you could gush all you want, and I'll, I'll join you, because he's, he's great in this. Yeah. Um, is there anything else we want to bring up, aside from the fact that Elsa is literally a poster child for... Being a Nazi and Harrison Ford—well, I'm not Harrison. I'm sorry. Indiana Jones is just like completely and utterly blinded to that fact, like immediately. Um. Well. Well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> At the same time, she's also she's also into the same thing that he's into, and game for pretty much everything that he is proposing to do, which is more than you could even say for Marion Ravenwood. That's true. Marion yeah. kind of Marion kind of went just because, you know, Indy came in and kind of ruined her, her yeah. life. Yeah. Elsa has a bit more depth to her that I think we're going to get in, into the second act. I feel like that's not exp- but but once we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. I mean I mean at least applied depth. Yeah. I, I do appreciate the Brothers of the Cruciform Sword, though, because unlike uh, Philip Blumbert in the second movie, who's just like, hey, I'm, I'm Philip Blumbert, and then he shows up at the end, uh, <laughs> these guys actually have a stated purpose, and w- one can sort of understand their, their kind of quote-unquote crusade, and then they show up at the end. And Yeah, it makes sense that they're there. Again, yeah. like Raiders of the Lost Ark, everything that we're seeing... We're not everything that we see and everything that we know ends up mattering at the end. And the movie, this movie, I think, does a better job of not just outright explaining everything through exposition, kind of letting you fill in the blanks. But nevertheless, basically, everything that comes up in this movie matters and winds up mattering at the end of the movie. And I just appreciated that there were brown skinned people in this movie and that they treated their culture with respect and dignity and they treat the Nazis like complete and utter fucking scum, which they are, which yeah. is is a is a fine return to form and way better than whatever weird bullshit would have happened if George Lucas made a movie about africa dear god Uh, they tried to do that with the james bond movie and god knows that is its own special kind of problematic (sighs) but yeah uh anyone have anything else on act one no nope all righty so now we move on to act two <clears throat> okay, uh, Elsa and Indy reach the Austria-Germany border, whereupon she has them stop at what is most assuredly the haunted mansion from a previous movie concept. According to Elsa, it belongs to the Brunwalds, famous art collectors. Jones tries to get them inside by using an ostentatious Scottish accent and his confidence. The two quickly discover that the Brunwald mansion is a Nazi stronghold. Actually, I think they knew that before. And soon after, find the room where Henry Sr. <laughs> is being held. Indy swings from one window to another, only to be conked on the head by a vase. His dad kvetches over the Ming vase more so than his son's health, but is delighted to hear that Indy was able to find the marker at Alexandretta. They argue some, 
Henry Sr. is beside himself at his son gunning down some Nazis, and subsequently find themselves staring down the barrel of guns. Connery has successfully sussed out Elsa's alignment, which is soon revealed. Then we meet the mastermind, none other than Walter Donovan. Indy is taken aback, but let's be real, Donovan always seemed like the type to wire Jim Crow laws at Himmler for legislative planning sessions. They take, <laughs> they take Henry Sr.'s diary, but Marcus Brody has the pages to re- reach the, the Grail tomb. Meanwhile, in the Hattay state, Brody bungles along and bumps into Sala. They try and escape, but are quickly loaded up into a conveniently labeled Nazi truck. <clears throat> Indy and his father are tied up and soon to be killed. Henry Sr. attempts to use his son's lighter to burn their ropes, but ends up burning the entire room instead. Some hijinks ensue with a secret fireplace hearth that leads to a calm room. They make their way out and find a motorcycle with a sidecar. Indiana jousts one Nazi off his bike and explodes another one with the old flagpole and the spoke trick. Father and son find themselves arguing over where to go next. It's mentioned that Indy's mother died of an illness, but no more on that later. Henry Sr. reveals that the path to the grill contains three booby traps, the hints of which are in his diary. They ultimately head to Berlin in the midst of a book-burning ceremony with none none other than historical pigfucker Hitler in attendance. They disguise themselves in Nazi uniforms. Indy finds and confronts Elsa, who tries to convince him that she is not all about this Nazi shit. He gets the diary back and is soon autographed by said pigfucker. Realizing that they're wanted men, the Joneses soon look for passage out of Berlin. They find and board a departing Zeppelin, but before they can see safety, the Nazi Oberst begins inquiring passengers about our heroes. He discovers Henry Sr., but Indy has, in true Agent 47 fashion, disguised himself again. The two melee, and Indy chucks Oberst off the the blimp onto a pile of luggage. Worst effect alert as Oberst shakes his fist at a rear-projected footage. (laughs) Indy calls out his dad out on abuse by neglect, and uh, Sean Connery makes excuses. They soon realize that the blimp is being turned around, so they attempt to escape in in the attached plane. Spielberg and Lucas get to more directly reference the World War II movies they earlier aped with Star Wars, with this dogfighting scene. Henry Sr., being inexperienced, is unable to to, uh, shoot down Nazi planes and instead takes out their wings. The two end up crash landing and running away from one of the Nazi gunners in a reference to Hitchcock's North by Northwest. They jack a nearby motorist car and end up making a Nazi plane explode by going through a tunnel. Henry Sr. finally makes himself useful by causing a flock of seagulls to obscure the windshield of another Nazi plane and make the pilot crash. I guess in a reference to Hitchcock's The Birds. Oh, that's act two. A lot of action, a lot of comedy hijinks in that one. Yeah. Is it just me, or around the time of the dogfight, was anyone else starting to get major Looney Tunes vibes? <laughs> yeah, kind of. It, it, but I don't feel like the comedy is out of place. No, but, it's just really noticeable. I'll say that's our other Temple of Doom nod when uh, when Henry Sr. says, can you fly this plane? And he says, fly, not land. Yeah. <laughs> just a little, little brief moment where they acknowledge it exists. But yeah, I like the fact that, again, Lucas being Lucas, you know, when they're in the original planning stages... Indy's father was very Yoda-like and very wise and conservative, and Sir Sean Connery is like, well, can can we just can we make them have this father and son relationship be just a little funny and add some bits of humor? And the way he plays this role is just uh, the fact that that man wasn't in more comedies because he's really fucking good at it. Yeah, and I what know, I. I, I 
I, I love the dynamic because like they they say straight up that he's an academic and he's not used to all this adventuring stuff. So this whole time he's like, Junior, those men are trying to kill us. And it's like, yes, I know. <laughs> yeah, it, it's great. His sort of like uh, a babe in the woods contrast as far as like getting his feet wet goes. And what I also appreciated is that like they, they speak about him like being giddy like a schoolboy. And when he meant uh, when Indiana Jones mentions that he found the Alexandretta, he he acts precisely like that. Like it's very well foreshadowed in, in his performance or it, it's paid off in his performance. Yeah. I mean, these Harrison Ford and Sean Connery have amazing chemistry with one, with an, right. one another. Um, I think Harrison Ford says, uh, Harrison Ford said he loved working with Sean Connery, uh, because Sean Connery didn't give a shit. And what he meant about that was, not that he didn't give a shit about the you know the craft of acting but just that he didn't have a lot of ego about him and that made it infinitely easier to work with him and go over scenes with them and you can they just have a natural kind of back and forth that is for only being 12 parts for only being 12 years apart you really do buy that this is an adult son dealing with his older father and you know just trying to bumble him through life it's it's just it, it's a joy to watch it made this movie so much it made this movie so much just good old-fashioned fun to watch george lucas got to more directly make like a a world war ii style uh bomber kind of sequence or or dogfight sequence that he would later use as an influence on on Star Wars, with like the the scene following the Zeppelin scene. Yeah, I, I was gonna say that John Williams' score, which I don't remember anything that any of his music from Temple of Doom to the point where we didn't even mention anything about the music because it was so because you were just distracted by the horror that was happening on screen. Yeah, basically, uh, but like big, big Star Wars vibes. And I don't know if it's just because... Uh, I don't know if it's because I just never n- noticed that... All, I don't think it's that all John Williams scores sound the same. I think with movies like this that are that are sort of very much action pulp swashbuckling, like you're bound to get like similar kind of turns we spoke about this in for raiders with uh marion's associated music kind of smacking of leia's yeah and this time uh i think i said that every time the nazis show up i expect luke to be looking at the twin sun setting over tatooine it's like that big it's like a it's like a villainous version of luke's theme which is which is weird yeah that's strange yeah i i I kind of compare him to alan silvestri in a way where he's really good at making that amazing title track that you can instantly associate with a franchise or a product motif yeah but then everything else it's it's serviceable but it's largely interchangeable Right. There was, we're jumping ahead a little bit during the tank chase, like when, uh, and he's hanging off the cannon, like 
there's a bit that sounds kind of like like the very f- uh, first bars of the Star Wars credits where it goes din, 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 din. like it that sort of comes yeah. up a little. Yeah, it was just something that I couldn't you, you can't not hear it again. Like every time the Nazis show up, I'm like, where's Luke with his with his fucking lightsaber? Because he's supposed to be damn it. Luke's supposed to be here killing the Nazis like that's his entire that's his bit. Um, you know, some fanfic writer has written that. Oh, God. Good on um, but it's cringy and it's awesome. You know it. Uh, wait, the fanfic is cringy and awesome? Yes. <laughs> I am not going to search for it in order to find out if it is or if it isn't. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is also the part where we learned that um, Henry Jones Sr. and Henry Jones, or Henry, don't call me Junior, Jones Jr., um, slept <laughs> with the same lady. Yeah. And, <laughs> Awkward. And the scene where Elsa is saying that she'll never forget the night that she had with Jones and Henry says, "Thank you. I won't forget. And I won't forget either. Something to that effect. It's just like perfect, just perfect comic timing." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Was like he? It, he also said something about like she talks in her sleep. Mm-hmm. And Harrison Ford's reaction, like, "How did you know that she was a Nazi?" Oh, she talks in her sleep. And Harrison Ford just like, hmm. yeah. He, he, hey. he gives the he gives the uh, Luke is my sister reaction. <laughs> <laughs> or you mean Leia is my sister? You said Luke. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I never get tired of the line where, where he's like, "Oh, she's young enough to be your granddaughter." So like, like, well, I have needs like the next man. I was the next man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, to be fair. Uh, he might not have been the, the next man. We don't know what Elsa was doing with Walter Donovan. <laughs> True. I mean, if he's the kind of man who would, you know, consort with Nazis and bribe, you know, probably, you know, authoritarian or, yeah, author- authoritarian mm-hmm. princes and ply them with rewards and cars. And like, he's... And say that he's gonna he's gonna book a wrestling show and in their town. <laughs> uh, even Walter Donovan isn't uh, isn't you know so scummy as to you know accept blood money. He did. I mean, it's not that he's not scummy. He just would you know have enough self awareness to realize that you don't take the blood money in front of everybody, especially after they've killed someone. You know, you take the blood money under the table when shit's quiet. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, bo- both of them would would try to jab out God a second time with the with the Holy Grail. I mean, D- Donovan didn't want to box. With, didn't want to. F- Donovan didn't put himself over on God. He just wanted to live forever. He didn't even right. really want to meet God. Uh, that was a <laughs> that was a weird and strange tangent into wrestling that people probably won't. Uh, only the hardest of the hardcore will understand. <laughs> Nah, if, if we're going against like wrestling crowds for this podcast audience, maybe they watch John Oliver. 
Yeah, they, probably. They remember that one episode where it's like, why, why is he talking about wrestling? <laughs> um, so Sala's very little in this movie. As far as I can tell. Like, I, I no, feel like he's just in this probably because they just wanted to bring him back from Raiders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Steven Spielberg basically said that he wanted to bring back some of those characters. That's why Brody has a much bigger role in this movie. That's why Sala came back. It's Which as I if don't... Brody and Sala's roles are reversed in, in terms of screen time and like overall importance. Yeah, and I don't blame... I don't blame Spielberg for that. I mean, because you couldn't... There was no way that you're going to bring able be able to bring back short round, you know, like, cause how do you short round wouldn't quite fit in this movie. And I say that as someone who enjoyed short round. And the more I think about it, the more I, I like how, you know, him and Willie and Indy all kind of bounced off of each other. But like that wouldn't have, it wouldn't have worked in this particular movie. And so I, I'm totally fine with Brody being basically being the three PO of this movie, right? Just <laughs> just bumbling into and out of trouble, completely and utterly out of his debt. You know, I love the scene because I because when the scene first happens, I'm like, oh shit, Brody's a badass. Like I thought he was. Where Harrison Ford's like. He's gonna, you know, he knows a dozen languages. He's got a million identities. You know, he's gonna fade into the crowd and he's gonna disappear. You'll never be able to find him. And then, you know, you cut to him, you know, hard cut to him, not knowing any English, not knowing where he is, just and, bumbling and, around, searching for Sala. And then Sala, that that would make uh that would make him the R two D two with with his garbage can uh, physique. <laughs> <laughs> Beep boop boop beep boop. <laughs> and and Salah telling Brody to run and Brody just being like, oh yeah, sure. And then just staying there. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, oh my papers here. Here's today's paper. Run. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. I'll I'll, I'll run. It's just uh, it's just it's so <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. It's like it's good in a. Uh, it's good in a very like I feel like there is a way that you could do that joke and it would be cheesy and camp, but something about the way it goes just feels right. You know? It's like, the right actors with the with the right direction. That's what it is. And it and yeah. it doesn't dwell on it, it's economic. Yeah. Like there's and, a lot in this movie. There's there's a pretty decent amount of plot in this movie and they and things are pretty the scenes themselves are pretty svelte and they get across what they need to get across. Yeah. It's it's just we're we're running into that Raiders thing again where it's like how many ways can you say that a good movie is good? Well, here here's one thing I did want to bring up. I mentioned Elsa's implied depth. And I, I think oh. one of the things that's brought up here is like during the book burning scene, you see she's very uncomfortable with the thing, but that doesn't really get fleshed out. Like we no, don't it really doesn't. get what her deal is. And the way that she's doing it, as a matter of fact, I wrote something like this in my notes. Like you notice, she almost has like tears in her eyes, and and she, and she says something to Indy like like I'm I'm against like I'm against like knowledge being thir-. like I, I forgot exactly what the line was, but but it almost made it seem as if she was crying because she knew that Indy was going to come along and tried to fool him because at the end of the movie she she ends up being like at least greedy 
I mean, but, uh, she she is a bit like the female Belloc in that she is of, but... she is into this stuff for archaeological purposes. She wants she, basically she's fallen in line with the Nazis because the Nazis are doing something that, and leading her to something that she wants. And if she has to fall in with the Nazis, then she's that's what she's gonna do. That's what she's gonna do. Uh, but the the scene where she's confronted with she's with Donovan and the rest of the Nazis, like she seems rather unrepentant. And that then they try to make the claim that she she doesn't agree with like who she's with. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. I I don't know. I think that like there are aspects that are that are a wee bit ambiguous when it comes to her. I guess I guess one can argue that she's more sort of on Donovan's side than she is, but meh, I don't know. Yeah, it's just hard in a movie that really condemns Nazis and calls Walter Donovan out several times for just being a fucking scumbag who's who is has no problem being, you know, cavorting around with Nazis. It feels a little weird that they have that they have the scenes of Elsa feeling like remorse, and I feel like it's because they want they she's a love interest to Indy, obviously, so they're kind of trying to keep that flame burning a little bit, but it's just hard to sympathize with people who sympathize with Nazis, like it's. I understand that the point is that she's a little bit conflicted or whatever, but I don't really care that she's conflicted because yeah. she's dealing with she she's going along with Nazis. Like I'm, I'm sorry. Like I, I don't know how sorry I can feel for this woman who has clearly made a horrible, terrible decision. No matter you know, why, no matter what the reasons that she's doing it is. I hear that. Yeah. I, I, yeah. that's why I was kind of like overall confused and, and think maybe they, there could have been a bit more time dedicated, but then again, I don't care. <laughs> yeah. The, this movie is pretty, even though it's a lot of plot, it's pretty, it is pretty economical with how we get from point B from point A to point B, it would have been a bit much to have her have a scene where she is feeling emotions because... This because... is a movie about Harrison Ford punching Nazis in the face. We didn't come here to discuss the ethics of a woman working with Nazis to further her archaeological goals. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. I guess um, now we can move on to Act 3. Unless anyone... Well, bef before that, I just wanted to point out that Harrison Ford and Sean Connery were pantsless in the Zeppelin scene. <laughs> yeah, because Sean Connery apparently gets very sweaty, and they shot a lot of this movie in Spain, where it was very hot, but they had to put on a bunch of clothes because the movie is supposed to take place in winter in Germany, and so he was like, okay, I'm just not gonna wear pants, 
Harrison Ford was like, okay, well, I'm just not going to wear pants either. And so <laughs> that, that whole scene where that whole emotional scene where they're going back and forth and Indy is, you know, reaming Henry for being a bad father who didn't pay attention to him. And Indy and Henry says, you left just as you were starting to get interesting. That whole scene is happening against the backdrop of Harrison Ford and Sean Connery not wearing pants. <laughs> and now we can move on to Act 3. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> okay. Now, gentlemen, we have a bit of a problem here. Uh-oh. You see, I thought I'd have more time to write my act summary. As such, I did not write an act summary. Therefore, I must bring you Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Act 3, Abridged. <clears throat> Sultan dude. Nazis try to bribe him with gold. He wants their car. Rolls Royce, best thing to come out of Germany in this time period. Because we got a Nazi convoy trucking through the desert, including a tank. Here is how not to be seen. Those guys from Act 1 are back. They don't do much. Now Henry Sr. is in the tank. Indy has to save him. Sala wants camels. Indy tries to get in the tank. It doesn't go well. Then it does go well. More Looney Tunes bullshit. Tank falls off a cliff. Tank goes boom. Everyone thinks Indy is dead. He's not. Quick, to the temple. So what were those three hints? We're going to need another Timmy. You will give us the grill, <laughs> Dr. Jones. You can't kill me. No, but I can kill your father. Bang! Oh, Junior. Ha-ha! Now you will have to get the grail. Only the penitent man will pass. And all the penitent man needed to do was dodge! You idiot! Jehovah is spelled with an I. I don't have anything funny to say about the third one. Who are you? I'm old. This one must be the grail. (laughs) He chose poorly. Well, it's obviously the shitty looking one. Oh shit, you figured it out. Hooray, now my dad won't die. And now I have the grail. You damn kids ruined my house. Get the fuck out. Indy was named after a dog. The end. Sweet. I mean, Indy. The the funny thing about that is that in my notes, the fucking tank scene is the most detailed thing that I wrote in my notes. I don't know why. (laughs) No, but it's just going to be me saying over and over again, this guy gets punched. This guy gets thrown off. This guy gets run over. I swear to fucking, I swear to Christ. That that one part of the scene where they're on the roof of the tank and Indy fires a Luger through three Nazis, like it pierces through three Nazis, right after that, a, a fucking mook does a German suplex to him. <laughs> I swear to oh, God. The tank scene is great. It is basically the high point of the movie. Yeah, and I, and I could say contrasting with Raiders and, and that fucking chase scene, which we agreed kind of dragged a little bit. Like, that was a fun scene. Yeah, because there's always something... Because in this scene, there's always something happening. I feel right. like in the Raiders scene, it just sort of like there's times in the Raiders scene where they're just like, okay, let's let's slap on a chin lock and talk about what we're gonna do next. Yeah. <laughs> Indy, you want to you want to take some heat? Okay, you take us some heat. This and... was like, yeah, this this Last Crusade scene was it was as if Randy Savage and Diamond Dallas Page like storyboarded it and <laughs> meticulous detail like planned it out. Yeah, and and funny enough, uh, because 
Spielberg was like, George said we had to have a tank scene. He didn't say why. He was just like, we, we got to have a World War One tank. We got to have a tank. And so that scene isn't actually like in the script. It's just, you know, Steven Spielberg went out and he storyboarded that whole scene and everything that happened because there awesome. had to be a tank scene. But uh, so much happens. But the fact that you can follow everything that happens, the fact that you can, you know, where everyone is all the time, you know, where all the danger is like. Uh, like, I, I just I love scenes like this that could be so chaotic that just makes sense. and You don't ever have to think. Hey, wait a minute. How'd he get there? Why is this happening? It's like, nope, everything that happens happens for a reason. An action sequence in and of itself should tell a story. Action right. scenes for the sake of action scenes are pointless. And if you're making an action scene just to get to point A, from point A to point B, like I think happened a lot in Temple of Doom then it just feels like you're it feels like you're at Disney Hollywood Studios watching the stunt show like that's that's what it feels like like it's it just doesn't feel good and doesn't feel rewarding whereas this feels basically it becomes waterworld basically yeah <laughs> that, i mean you you have like again the the bullet piercing through three three nazis you have indy hanging off the tank you have the, the him fucking stuffing the cannon you have um uh, Henry Senior using the fountain pen ink on the on the dude. You have Brody hitting someone with a cannon shell, like just so many like uh, individual parts that one can can pick out and remember. Yeah, and all the while Sala is just trying to wrangle camels because his brother in law's car got blown up. <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't think his brother in law's car got blown up. I think it was just that. Uh, he just owed his brother-in-law money, and so he was like, eh. "No, I, th I thought he specifically said it was restitution for the car." Oh, right. He they did blow up the car, didn't they? Yeah, <laughs> that was In the, the whole "how not to be seen" part. Yeah, the scene where Harrison Ford—well, I keep saying Harrison Ford. Where Indiana Jones and Henry and Salara up on the cliff, and uh, someone sees the glint coming off Indy's binoculars, and then yeah, they blow up the car. <laughs> Again, really, really good scene. You know where they are, and there is a there is a consequence for that action. I just. I, it just I just love this I just love this scene especially because there's uh, I mean the minecart scene and in, in Temple of Doom is great uh, obviously we had our opinions about the the chase scene and Raiders which, you know, I think all in all, it's still, it's fine. It just could have, like, used a little bit of cutting up. But there's going to be a, a sequence in the next movie that doesn't have just as much care and attention to detail as there is here. Like, you know, there were two, like, there were, 
they made two tanks. Like, they made, you know, obviously the treads didn't actually work. There was one tank that the, you know, was pulled along by a truck, and that's the one that Harrison Ford's face gets bounced off of a couple times. You know, the tr- and everything in that scene is real. Like, the tread is real. Indy's face getting bounced off the treads is real. You know, Sean Connery, while they have him wrapped around the whip, that's real. Everything they shoot here is in camera. And they just had to find a way to do it. And I just think it... Uh, there's 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 so much craft in specifically this kind of movie and in movies of this era where the technology was just sort of matching up with the filmmaking and all these directors knew just how to film these big sequences and i think there's a reason why scenes like this stick with you whereas scenes in newer movies don't you know what i mean yeah like um go ahead i don't know i'm trying to think yeah i completely agree i'm trying to think of like contrary examples like i'd mentioned the terminator franchise but terminator i mean transformers franchise but uh I've only seen the first one. Nevertheless, like there is enough scenes of just like a mash of uh, <laughs> just a mash of like cogs and and spikes and and metal. Yeah, it's thinking it's, about the day we have to finally do that franchise. Uh, but but the the thing about that though is that Michael Bay actually did shoot a lot of the action. Like, yeah, there's uh, there there's. At least in the early ones, there is more, like, I don't want to say practical effects because none of the Transformers are practical, but there's some practical effects in those movies. Yeah, which are merged with the with the CG aspects, which gives it a little bit more of a a little bit more of a realistic film feel. But a lot of movies nowadays just don't have that. No, and like I say, yeah, CGI is fine when it's used as a tool, and I still maintain to this day the two best movies that use CGI. One of them is Jurassic Park, the other is Titanic. Oh, I thought you were going to say Polar Express. You're going to say what? I think you're going to say Polar Express. I haven't even seen Polar Express, but both of those movies, they don't just wholly rely on, you know, CGI. you know, you've got practical sets, practical effects mixed with computer enhancements that you can't do practically without things being really dangerous or just logistically impossible. Yeah, and it's gotten to the point where now now directors are like, we're going to do as much as we can practically. Like, it's done a... Comp- after just a deluge of movies in, you know, the 2000s and whatnot... That I actually were- want to bring up a specific movie that was shot all practically and it came out like crap and it's a movie called frozen and no it's not the frozen you're thinking (laughs) not the disney one not the disney one there was another one before it It was this independent movie uh and basically the whole premise is three friends go on a ski trip they want to get in one late night ski 
run and they go up on the chairlift, but it gets shut off when they're halfway up and they're left hanging there. And they're going to be hanging there for like five days. And if the plot of a movie uh, where your protagonists are stuck on a chairlift sounds boring. Oh, you have no idea. If it sounds boring, it, just, just watch the Curb Your Enthusiasm episode where that happens. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, it, they kind of tout the whole thing was done practically, and a lot of it just looks really fake. Mm. Also, is... Go ahead. Another example is the Thing prequel, where the, the, the creators were, were very huge fans of the original one, so they wanted to do as much as they could in practical. And as far as I, I can tell, they did, but for some reason, the producers told them to, to CGI in the movie. Like, they, they mandated that they had to use CGI even after the movie was, like, complete and they were doing reshoots and stuff. And it was very arbitrary, and it, and it ruined at least, like, some of the potential that a redundant movie like that had. Yeah, to the point where they actually shot a lot of the stuff in that movie practically and then had to basically go in and erase the practical effect to put in a digital effect, which... It seems like a waste of time and money and resources for what is essentially no payoff. Yep. Like, just... I feel like in this movie, the craft of filmmaking is back. You know, we... There is one... There is one very important shot that is made almost exclusively on a computer and that is the shot of Donovan rapidly aging, which is where he, where he turns into Christopher Lloyd. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's but... what I always like. Every time I saw that gift before I understood it was from this movie, I thought that that was just Christopher Lloyd. <laughs> now, and for fuck, that looks good. Yeah. And it is like, like people say this doesn't have the creepy factor that Raiders did. Uh, I beg to differ. Yeah. And do you guys know how they did that whole what what would you guys guess how they shot that scene? See, I would have assumed if I didn't know it was CGI, I would have assumed that it was like Jan Svankmeyer style, like stop motion or whatever. Backlash. I don't know. Uh like if I didn't know it was CG, uh, I'd say, um, yeah, probably stop motion. So what they did is that this is one of the first like examples of, um, not one of the first examples, but kind of like one of the first examples of really advanced like animatronics being used. <clears throat> so essentially what they would do because because they could have the animatronic repeat the same action over and over perfectly every single time what they did was essentially they they would put one you know one head and shoulders and hair and everything on uh on this animatronic and they would shoot that and then they would take off the head and they would put the next stage on, and they would shoot that. And they would take off the next head and shoot that. And what they would do, and what they used the CGI for 
was to crossfade all the different shots together. So it's this cool combination of them using this really advanced animatronics and them using CGI to morph and fade the character, you know, in order to get this composite shot. Um, you can, uh, there's a quarter crew um, artist reacts to good and bad CGI about um, stuff that happens in Indiana Jones that I recommend people watch, especially in light of uh, the, the, the scene we're going to see in the next, uh, the yeah. next movie. This is, this is basically our moment of, of um, appreciating the lengths they'll go to for their effects or achieving their effects before we see how fucking ridiculous and cartoonish the next one looks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, but also the scene um, where Indy's, uh, it's the second trial. Um, how do you guys think that they filmed that shot? Oh. You mean where he's hanging? Uh, no. Green screen? No, the shot where, um, the shot where. The, oh, are you talking about the invisible bridge? Yeah, the invisible bridge. That's the third one. As far as I could tell, yeah, that was the third one. I, I thought that in universe that was like an optical illusion. Yeah, yeah, but from but from as many angles as they shot. Hmm. So what they did for that shot is they built a scale model that Indiana Jones steps out of. And I think that's actually one of the first composite that's also a composite shot in this movie. Mm-hmm. And they built a scale model where they have the actual actor, Harrison Ford, step out into the bridge. And then they had a um, a miniature that they were able to film. And so, again, they're able to composite those two shots together so that they can create that cool illusion. So they can create that cool illusion. And you will actually notice if you go back and watch that scene, if you look at Harrison Ford's feet, Harrison Harrison Ford's feet are kind of blended into the rock because it's like obviously a very early CGI composite shot. So it, it actually looks like he's not like he's floating, but like he's sunk into the rock. But again, like that is... At least at this time, that's how you do CGI. You have a, you have practical effects working in concert, concert with the CGI to create something that you know. I imagine made people. It made me gasp, and I knew how they did it. Like it's still just an immaculate shot. And the second it happens, you're like, oh, that makes so much fucking sense. It's just. Mm-hmm. It's just, just perfect. Just, just, I, I love filmmaking that that does that that goes to that length. It, it feels to me like Steven Spielberg found his soul again in this movie. Yeah, I can totally understand that. Um, and then, um, and and speak, uh. I guess if we're going to the end of the movie, we mentioned Indiana Jones is named after a dog. Um, yeah, Indiana Jones 
Indiana is named after George Lucas's dog. Uh, I think in Temple of Doom, I didn't bring this up, but Willie is named after Steven Spielberg's dog. <laughs> and Short Round is named after one of the producer's dogs. So, <laughs> so yeah, it was kind of an inside joke that Indiana is named after a dog. Which we see that dog briefly at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Just, I wonder just, if that was George Lucas's actual dog. I don't. Uh, I don't know if that. It wouldn't shock me if it was. It really. It, it really wouldn't. Um, and it's just that dog is just there for a second. It's obviously not super important to the scene, but when you hear that it's about the dog, you're like, "Hey, the dog that happened at the the, the dog from the beginning of the movie." Like again. And then, like, the final scene where we haven't talked a lot about the father and son relationship between Indy and Henry, but, you know. Like, th- th- there's a good moment after the tank falls off the cliff and they think he's dead. And he just it kind of hits him. Like, that whole, I thought I had more time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that that in itself is almost an excuse for for sort of being uh like as if he was sort of holding off on bonding or, or and like I mean like and now that now that he realizes he's alive, he could just keep making that excuse cuz it 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 presents like a a neglectful relationship. Like an in a more or less like an abusive relationship that they that they sort of like rough out, but yeah. But have to keep lighthearted so that it doesn't get into into very serious territory. But they, but I also love the fact that they clearly, clearly love each other. Like that's just, I think that pops off the screen that like they love each other. Indy, you know, he might have his issues with his father, but you can tell that he really, on some level, he wants to impress his father. Yes, and there's just moments where they look at each other. You're like, those are, those are two people who genuinely love each other, a father and a son that genuinely love each other. And it's nice because I feel like in other movies that have a little bit of an abusive father, son relationship, it takes a lot longer to get to the point where you're like, yeah, these two characters, you know, they could be related (laughs) in some way. This is like, it's clear that they love each other. They just have some, some stuff they got to work through. And again, when Indy is presented with a choice to get the grail to save his father, he does not hesitate. There is not a second thought that he gives. He's like, yep, I have to save him. That's, that's just the way it is. Um, I also love that, that scene where he says, I thought he had more time. And then Indiana Jones just comes up behind the group and stands looking off the cliff with all of them and it just like the shot just sits there and lingers for like it, it was just long enough for like an, a laugh to build before everyone realizes that he's still alive <sighs> Does it, do you guys have anything else with act three nah I will say that like uh, I I remember the the whole penitent man line because it it reminds me of uh, Ralph Garman, if anyone knows that, who that is. Kevin mm-hmm. Smith is is quite a quite a weirdo in his older age, 
but like he hosted a podcast with a, a LA DJ named Ralph Garman. And like, he would always do a, a, an imitation of, of Harrison Ford as he is in like the 2010s where he's just any appearance. It seems like he's on pills. And to be fair, that's the way I thought of him in temple of doom where he just mumbles to himself. <laughs> so, so that scene always amused me with him going. To- well, he is high off pills and marijuana because his back is broken. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But in this one, he was definitely more game. Like that's something that we have to mention. Like he uh, he gave a much more spirited performance in uh, yeah in Last Crusade. So. I mean, this is uh, this is Harrison Ford's favorite. He says this is his favorite Indiana Jones movie. Pretty cool because it was the first one that he felt like it advanced the character of Indiana Jones. Right, right. It, no, no, no backache, no dysentery. Yeah, like no butt problems, no back problems, just. Fun times on set with a crew that had worked on three of these movies. So it was also super efficient and nice. And just, it was just in much better locations too. I mean, Venice in Spain, uh, going there to shoot movies. Uh, it must be, it, it's like taking a, it's like a, taking a fucking vacation compared to, Tunisia and Sri Lanka where you can't even drink the water and you're you're going to hurt your back and it's going to suck. All right. So, uh, well, I did kind of want to uh, make one thing. I probably would have added if I'd actually written a proper uh, <laughs> a, a proper act summary. <laughs> how this how this uh movie ends with them riding off into the sunset. And that's how it should have ended, but it didn't. No. Yeah. And uh, uh, so before we get to that, um, let's get some final thoughts about Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Um, I would say that, like, in the most positive way, this was a course correct from Temple of Doom and. In, in a sense, it was an overcorrect and not in a bad way. They, <clears throat> for every for every sort of plot element of Temple of Doom that felt unjustified, that felt like very muddy. For every sort of look at culture that felt that felt sort of um, insensitive, like this one kept it simple. They they kept, the villains were Nazis, which is great, um, and everything. And for having so much plot, it seemed like everything was was justified, like beyond like a few concerns like as i said before i still consider raiders just like a a superior viewing experience but like i would totally not argue with anyone who prefers this one yeah it's gonna be hard for me like if we end up ranking these movies it's gonna be hard uh whether this whether i like this one more than raiders or if Raiders is better, I'd, I'd probably need to rewatch Raiders for that. But this is just a fun movie that I really don't have very many complaints about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same here. It was just. Again, I think after Temple of Doom, I was like, OK, well, everyone says that this is way better than Temple of Doom. But like watching fucking grass grow was probably better than Temple of Doom. So how much better can it be? But it's. Even if Temple of Doom wasn't a thing, this would be a good movie. A very good movie. 
it's just fun and lighthearted and it's full of it has a lot more heart and soul than I think that's what's tipping it over the edge for me is probably the relationship between Henry and Indy is pushing it over the edge for me over Raiders. Uh-huh. Just be, just be good. Did I tell a joke again? And I didn't mean to. <laughs> um, no, I, it flew over my head. If you, if you did. Um, but yeah, it's just the, it's just the, as we said with Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's just a good movie and it does what a good sequel is supposed to do, which is build on the things that came before it while keeping just enough things familiar to, you know, make you want to see the character grow and whatnot. Oh, and well, that's not really a bombshell that this is a good movie, but next week we get to watch Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Indiana Jones and the Aliens. Indiana Jones and the man, I'm so glad that I watched this movie and didn't pay attention to it so many times when I was working at FYE and we would just play it over and over and over again on a loop. And You're getting at so much um, involuntary memory. Yeah. There um, while you watch it. It's just going to be like a shock to the system like, oh shit, I do remember this scene. Yeah. Oh god, I do remember this scene. <laughs> yeah. Uh, again, I'll trade you with the golden compass anytime. Uh, do you guys have any? Do you guys have any? I don't know. Thoughts about Kingdom of the Crystal? Like Gold? I said, there are points I'm going to stick up for about that movie, but as a whole, it really doesn't work. Mm. Yeah. No, I, I don't. I don't have any initial thoughts. I'll save all of it for, for after I watch it. Yeah, it's it's not gonna be a fun time. It's not gonna be a fun time. It's not gonna be a fun time. I think I'm. I think I'm going crazy already. Cause what I do remember of that movie is just fucking absurd and stupid. And uh, I guess we'll just get out of here before before I get started because I don't want to get started before the movie starts. So on that note, uh, uh, this has been sequelized. And I'm Casey. I'm your foxy friend Backlash. I'm no Chris Alot. Uh, and we will see you next time on what? The- Hang on! Guys! What? 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 This is a movie about the Holy Grail. We haven't made a Python reference yet.
I made a Python reference. Damn it! I was just gonna have you cut to the intermission music at the end. Oh, I can still do that. <laughs> oh god! I, I was actually voice trying to go full piccolo. I was gonna say like the how the fuck does Takahata do it? The, the Grail Knight kind of did look like something out of out of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Yeah, it did. They should have. They should have had like Eric Idle play him, or, or or like Michael Palin or something. All right. With arms wide open. 